Hello. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the fact that we're all here actually together, uh, interested in practicing uh, a Buddhist mind training, mindfulness from Asia, is pretty, well, amazing. And it's dependent on a tremendous amount of conditions that some of which we see here, having a retreat center, having uh, the teachings brought from the, west, from the east to the west. But I want to take a page from history uh, and kind of comment a little bit about it just so we can put our being here in a larger perspective. And I want to um, offer a commentary on uh, an admonition that the Mahasi Sayadaw offered back in Burma in the middle of the last century. Now, Mahasi Sayadaw was a, a senior monk in the Buddhist, Burmese Buddhist tradition who is remembered for a couple of things. One was he was an extraordinary scholar and recognized throughout the country and in, that cent- in the last century. And he was also uh, an extraordinary practitioner in that he learned how to practice mindfulness to the, for the development of insight. And then he, he did something that was quite unique, actually. He understood that it could be taught to lay people, householders like ourselves, that you didn't really have to be in the monastery or in the nunnery for a lifetime in order to get these teachings. And to practice them and to benefit from them. And so in some ways, our being here as householders and lay people is kind of a direct descendant of what Mahasi Sayadaw started in Burma in 1947. So I want to read his admonition as I've adapted it to our Western understanding. He says, Do good deeds avoid causing harm, and purify the mind. These are the teachings of the Buddhas. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and humanity. And living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love, solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good Dhamma. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body, their impermanence, unreliability, and insubstantiality and such wisdom leads to lasting peace. This retreat or this meditation center should be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. In some way I think it's something that We all know inside already, and it may have conditioned and been part of our reflection when we consider doing this retreat, that there's something more to life than 
our Facebook page, or the next Twitter, or the news headlines, or whatever your to-do list asks of you to do. There's much more. And here we have the opportunity to discover it. And while the format of the retreat of sitting and walking in silence and just paying attention to the moment-to-moment experience seems pretty, well, ordinary, um, it's extraordinary in the power of what it does to our mind, to our heart, and in our life. So this encouraging counsel, as I call it, from Mahasi Sayadaw is really a call to practice and a call to really listen, practice, and realize for ourselves what the Buddha taught. We've all been practicing in the Buddhist tradition, as Kamala has mentioned, and uh, what we'll be offering here in this retreat is primarily and significantly from the teachings of the Buddha. In some ways, Mahasisayadar is aiming his encouragement and his guidance, his instruction, his admonition to your highest aspiration. What is it you want to do with your life? And to support that, to encourage you to do that, to look deeply in your own heart. And when I looked up the word admonition, it it kind of has a... Or when I hear the word admonition, it kind of has a flavor of... <laughs> I don't know, a little like <laughs> finger-wagging admonition. But it's really not. It's really meant to be uh, a source of guidance and inspiration and encouragement on this path of awakening. So when he says, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify the mind, these are the teachings of the Buddha, we should understand that the Buddha of our time, Gautama Buddha, who lived 2,600 years ago, was just the most recent in a long line of Buddhas who all teach the same thing that they discovered through their own practice. And all of the commentaries and all of the books that we have available to us today are but commentaries and elaboration on what the Buddha taught. Whether it's from the Tibetan tradition or the Zen tradition or the uh, contemporary uh, traditions that are available to us, and they all seem to be. They're commentaries on what the Buddha taught, which in their simplest statement is to do good, avoid causing harm, and develop the mind. When we say to do good, we really mean to be a benefactor to the world rather than a burden. And we all have something to offer. We all have a benefit to bestow on the world. And it's to find that to look within ourselves and see what is really the wholesome, the beneficial, the good, and do that. And the Buddha gave some guidance as to what doing good is. Of course, being generous, giving charity to the poor, developing your mind, living in harmony with others, listening to the Dhamma is one of the good one of the ten wholesome or good actions that the Buddha 
suggested. And it's because we hear things in the Dharma that helps us to, and this is the tenth of the ten wholesome actions, to straighten our views. We live in confusion and bewilderment and we suffer to the extent that we do in our life because we don't understand the way things are. We struggle against the way things are. We have wrong views and misunderstandings about how things are. We know what we want sometimes. We know how we'd like things to be. And yet it's because we don't see how things truly are that we come to the Dharma practice. That we come to the Dharma, we practice hoping to realize deeply and deeply align our heart, mind, our life, our behavior with the way things are. For when we are aligned with the truth, the way things are, we stop struggling. And when you stop struggling, we find peace. So to listen, to put yourself in a position here where you're willing to listen to the Dharma as we'll be offering it in instructions and answers to questions and evening talks, is to plant the seeds of right understanding in your mind. So that as we continue to pay attention to the unfolding of our life, these understandings will come forth, support us, and in time we may indeed recognize, oh, this is the way it is, and stop struggling. So to listen to the Dharma and to practice the Dharma are some, a couple of the most wholesome, beneficial things you can do in your life. To the extent that we each understand our own suffering and the causes of suffering, we know that about others. And we'll be able to be a benefactor rather than a burden to them. To avoid causing harm is, as was mentioned, to really live with respect for others. Live caring about us, acting compassionately so that we're not speaking and behaving or misbehaving in a way that causes pain, suffering in any way to others. It said that there are 10, just as there are 10 wholesome actions, there are 10 unwholesome actions. The usual and the, the, the familiar, not killing, not stealing, not acting out sexual energy in a way that causes harm. Careful, carefulness of speech. And one of the, or the three mental unwholesome actions are covetousness of others' belongings, ill will or some form of aversion. And significantly, one of the ten unwholesome actions is wrong view, wrong understanding. Usually when we think of not causing harm, we think, yeah, not killing, not stealing, not, not slandering, not, 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 not speaking badly. But the Buddha put having wrong understanding right up there with those others. That's how important right view at least having heard of the right view, whether we agree with it, buy into it, can understand it or not. But that's how important right view is. And so be, to be willing to put yourself here in retreat, to hear nine days of right view, that's a noble act. It ennobles our life to straighten our views, to avoid, 
as much as possible unwholesome wrong views and to straighten and develop right views. Sometimes we, we overlook the, maybe the subtlety of what it is we're doing with our mind here. Coming to mind is great. You know, getting a little insight, that's great. But deeply understanding and aligning our minds with the way things are is transformative. And that's what we do here. And so we want to take uh, joy in our willingness to, uh, to put ourselves in a position to hear it and to practice so that we can realize it. And to purify the mind, the third teachings of the Buddha, as Kamala mentioned, is to both calm the mind through awareness and putting aside the hindrances and the defilements temporarily, but also to purify our understanding through the development of insight. Two parts to purifying the mind. Purifying our mind of defilements, hindrances, and purifying our understanding of delusion, confusion, wrong views. He then goes on to say that it is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth and humanity. And sometimes it's a little counterintuitive because sometimes generosity, as we know, requires us to give something of ourselves, give of our possessions, give of our time, give of our knowledge, give of our space, give of our energy. And it's not always easy. But what he's saying is that it's when we know how to practice generosity skillfully, when we practice it as a, uh, uh, a happiness practice, both for ourselves and for others, then we learn how to practice generosity. We learn how to be generous in a way that indeed brings happiness to our own mind and to others. We live in a very complex, interdependent world. And there's more than that now, than more than six billion other human beings on the face of the earth. And we see more and more with greater clarity and greater intimacy just how impacted our life is by the actions of others anywhere in the world. A single person anywhere in the world can immediately and dramatically impact our life. And while the news reports those behaviors or misbehaviors that cause a lot of suffering, and a lot of pain, a lot of distress, a lot of stress, just as unwholesome actions impact us, our wholesome actions impact others. It's not a one-way street where only we are affected by the unwholesome. Everyone else is affected by the wholesomeness that we develop in our mind. Our being here and developing wholesomeness in our mind is a great act of generosity that we offer to the world. Our calmness, our clarity, our understanding, our faith, our commitment, our compassion, that we develop here and share with others in the world is a gift. 
We don't need anything in return from it. We just offer it to the world knowing full well that it ripples out endlessly, touching the hearts and lives of others. Living in harmony too, he says, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Living in harmony is living respectfully, living with concern, compassion, care for others. And when we do, when we live carefully in how we speak, how we act, how it impacts others, then we have no cause for regret, guilt, shame, remorse, fear of punishment or retribution, no more blame. Imagine your mind, no guilt, no shame, no fear of punishment, no retribution, free of the, angst, the social anxiety of having acted carelessly, having caused harm to others. Tremendous amount of suffering in our lives from being careless, others being careless. And when we make it a practice to pay careful enough attention that we can uh, live with awareness of how we speak and how we act, the benefit is immediate and immense. Our internal life calms down. We just start living more at ease with ourselves. Not just harmony with others, but harmony with ourselves, And that would be a great relief. And to the extent that we practice the precepts here on retreat, you'll see. We just come to terms with ourselves more easily. And if you made it a lifetime practice, it would be uh, commensurately beneficial in your life. Now... Mahasi Sayadaw, being a monk, of course, his whole life, probably from the age of seven or ten, could say something like, let there be only a few things that you attend to, <laughs> which seems so impossible in our life. Because, well, we live in the 21st century, we're in the West, and we all have, uh, well, more to do in 24 hours than we can fit in in 36 I'm not the only one, right? Right. And the to-do list, have you noticed, it never ends. Some things get taken off, but more things get added. And sometimes we, we live our life as if it is to get through the to-do list. That's not what life's about. We have to do things, of course. But... What is the value of letting there be only a few things that you attend to? What is the value of it in our life? We're busy. We've got a lot of responsibilities, a lot of obligations, a lot of commitments that we have to fulfill. But not for the next nine days. Now we have the opportunity to really see for nine days what it's like to let there be only a few things that you attend to. Fill your water bottle, do your yogi job, show up to sit. That's it. You really don't need to check your Facebook, your Twitter, your glitter, your cell phone, your email. 
or anything else. But just learning how not to be busy is a challenge. But I want to encourage you to really take this opportunity to experiment with yourself, to see what you can learn about the value of letting there be only a few things that you attend to. Because to the extent that you realize the value for yourself here, you have that same understanding of the value when you leave here. If you don't find the value here, you're not going to find it at home either. Because life is so much more demanding, so much more immediate, so much louder outside of retreat. And so we take this opportunity to encourage you to let there be only a few things that you attend to. When he says, let there be only a few words that you say, well, here on retreat we mean to uh, support the practice, uh, your own practice and the practice of others by what we call noble silence. Now, noble silence doesn't mean not talking ever. It means only speaking as necessary to clarify and support your practice. Getting instructions from us, asking questions when appropriate, uh, getting clear on your yogi job if that's necessary. But other than that, putting aside the chatter of speaking and the chatter of the mind that wants to speak. Putting aside all that uh, internal conversation, really. Rehearsing for how we're going to say, what we're going to say and respond to. and Just let that quiet down in the mind. It's a habit that we have, of course. And so we're going to see it come up in the mind, the impulse to talk with one another. For out of loneliness, out of fear, out of concern for them, thinking that they're, they need to be talked to now, they don't. <laughs> Even if you've come with your good friend or your partner, be kind. Let them have the space of their own mind this week. If anyone's in severe distress, believe me, We'll see them, we'll find them, we'll offer what's necessary. But if you see someone who's in severe distress, of course, attend as you can. But otherwise, let each other be with our own unfolding mind. Even consoling or connecting, let it, let it go. Let the silence and the sincerity of your practice be the vehicle or the the connectivity that you have with one another. One time when I was practicing in Burma in the monastery, I guess one of the Burmese monk, one of the Burmese monks that was living near me had noticed that I talk a lot. And so he asked me, and this is after I'd been there for a couple of years, he said, have you ever been quiet for a day? <laughs> I didn't know whether to feel guilty, ashamed, or just, what? But I said, uh, you mean I'm not? <laughs> he said, no, no, you're not. And I said, well, okay, I'll try for three days to be quiet. And I was living in the monastery for years, you know, and couldn't find a way to be quiet for a day. So I, I, for the next three days, I paid careful attention to not talking. Of course, I talked every day. There were some 
compelling reason to talk each of those three days. And then I forgot about my aspiration and my commitment until sometime later when friends of mine showed up at the monastery and I was happy to see them, so I greeted them and started talking with them. One of the other monks in the monastery said to me, oh, I see you're talking again. And I said, why? Haven't I been talking? I mean, I, I, I haven't noticed anything different. He said, you haven't spoken in six weeks. But having made the commitment, having made the, had the aspiration and made a commitment, I thought I failed the first three days. I did, I failed the first three days, I confess. But still the idea, the, the intention was planted in the mind and it took root. So plant this seed in your mind. Silence is noble. Noble silence. Silence can support the nobility, the unfolding nobility of the mind that we discover through awareness and Dharma practice. Check it out for yourself. See if that's true. Then he says, and let there be only a few hours that you spend sleeping. Now there's a famous uh, line that uh, Upandita, one of our teachers at the Mahasi Center, usually says, you can sleep as much as you like between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. <laughs> as much as you like. <laughs> of course, four hours doesn't seem like a lot. And when I first started practicing in the monastery, that's what was expected. You start at four hours. And it was no kidding, four hours. And it was hard. It was hard for a while. I mean, because, well, I thought I needed much more, as you probably think you do. And for a while, you will. But test yourself. I encourage you to really check it out for yourself. What is it that makes you go to bed at night? Is it real sleepiness? Is it boredom? Is it loneliness because nobody else is here in the hall? What is it that stops the momentum of your practice for the day? What is it that keeps you from getting up when you wake up earlier than the wake-up bell? Look into your own mind and see the habits of mind that we have gotten comfortable with. That, while here on retreat, are an obstacle, really, to development of the mind. I'm not saying torture yourself without sleeping. Get the sleep you need but only the sleep you need. Love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors along with doing few things, speaking few words, and sleeping a few hours. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Now I read this and I said, love solitude and seek good friends. Wait a minute. Is that contradictory or not? Actually it's not. Solitude is not about being lonely or being isolated or being far off, away from everyone. It's the ability and the willingness to be alone with your own mind. Solitude from solitary, from single, from one, 
being at one with yourself, really being in tune, in touch with, accepting your own mind, your own body, how it is in this moment is solitude, even in the midst of a group. Can we learn to love that solitude? The ongoing awareness of the mind in the midst of this group of a hundred of us or so who will be good spiritual friends to one another during this time here. It's so important to, to have the visual, auditory, human contact and support while practicing. If we just heard the teachings and wandered off, you know, into some isolated place, it would be really hard to practice. Really difficult. And just having others around to, to see practicing, to hear practicing, to see and feel their own challenges and difficulties supports our own practice in solitude. So learn to love solitude, the solitude of being alone here among good spiritual friends, those who can support you. Both, we're here to support you, and the other yogis are here to support you. The staff is here to support you. The whole center is here to support you. And there's hundreds or dozens of hundreds of people behind the scenes holding this place in place, having created this center for us so that we can do just what we're here to do. Without them, it'd be hard. Er. So we can take refuge in that. We can take, uh, we can understand that they are our good friends who are encouraging us to fulfill our highest aspiration. And even amongst us, calling forth, just seeing how others practice can call forth from you the sincerity and the continuity of energy for your own practice. He says, these are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. What are good dhammas? We should understand that, you know, it's not only feeling pleasant, being happy, that is good dhammas, but it's the awareness, understanding, continuity of faith, feeling inspired, feeling, uh, knowing our aspiration, feeling clear, feeling calm, feeling non-reactive. These are good dhammas, good pleasant and wholesome states of mind. They also sometimes manifest as spiritual goodies, delight, ecstasy, joy, bliss. And in the end, or along the path, we get to taste the peace of the unconditioned. These are the good dhammas, available if we love solitude, seek good friends, live simply, Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body. The impermanence of the mind and body, the unreliability of the mind and body, and the insubstantiality of the mind and body. This understanding leads to lasting peace. This is the encouragement we have. 
lasting peace is possible through the continuity of awareness. We'll be encouraging you to be aware, to remember this present moment is it. That's it. And to remember to be there for it. Whether it's physical or mental, pleasant or unpleasant, subtle or gross, familiar or novel, whether it's mundane or exotic, it's just this moment's experience. And if we're not there for it, we miss life. And so our practice here is to be, to remember that we're alive in each moment. And this is it. Whatever you experience, that's it. It's good enough. Can it be good enough? Fantasizing about the way it's going to be, pining for the way it used to be. Not lasting peace. When we become aware of the habits of mind that take us away from the present moment's experience, then we can let them go. And so our practice is to try to remember to be present for this moment's experience. The body, the mind, and what it, what, what's happening there? How does it feel? What's going on in the mind? What's going on in the body? What's the nature of the mind right now? What's the nature of the body right now? What do you feel? And unpleasant is okay. Feel bored? Fine. You feel happy? That's also fine. You feel angry? Fine. Can you be aware of that? That's the challenge. Can we just see this is the way it is for now? And knowing that it will change. Whatever arises passes away. We'll see this. We don't have to get rid of unpleasant, painful experience. They go away by themselves. Can we endure them when they're there? Can we let them go when they leave? Same with pleasant. We don't have to hang on to them. It's impossible. Can we see that they're impermanent? Can we let them be impermanent? This is the beginning of the understanding, the deep, insightful understanding that leads to, that brings us to, that reveals to us the doorway to lasting peace. Lasting peace is a reality. It's the reality of Nibbana, the unconditioned that the Buddha pointed to. It can be realized. It's not only for people at the time of the Buddha, monks and nuns who've lived in caves for dozens of years. It's for you and I, as householders, in the West, in the 21st century. It is possible. If we practice. Our time here together is an opportunity to further develop the mind, our understanding, purify the mind, purify our understanding, so that we can see a little more clearly for ourselves that this is so. Let this retreat be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, and come and liberate the mind.
we have the opportunity for the next nine days to really uh, see for ourselves the value and the efficacy of the teachings of the Buddha. And really to put into practice all of our aspirations, our energy, our faith, our confidence, our hope, what we've learned and practiced in the past, and to bring it here and to use it to be aware moment by moment. And to the extent that we do, we'll confirm for ourselves what the Buddha taught. Oh, thank you for listening. I think Sally's going to share some information about the precepts. Thanks, Steve. So I want to uh, lead you in the traditional ritual that we do at the start of every retreat, which is the taking of the refuges and precepts. But I realize that uh, many of you have heard this a number of times before, and it's often late when we get to this section of the evening. Um, And because most of us didn't grow up in a Buddhist culture where these uh, uh, practices of taking the refuge and taking the precepts were really uh, part of our understanding from very early on, it can seem a little foreign. And so this concept of taking refuge in something isn't uh, something we naturally do or easily do. And so I sometimes feel when I get to this point of the retreat a bit like the flight attendant on the plane, you know, that's standing there with the safety instructions and saying, really pay attention to this. This is important. And everyone's reading their magazine or talking to each other or listening to their, phone, their you know, music on the thing, and they're going, this is really important. Pay attention. Or sleeping, whatever. So hopefully you're not listening to music or chat, you know, you're not quite doing that, but sometimes I, I feel that uh, we don't quite connect with it in the way that uh, it can be connected to, because this is a powerful practice. Actually, I saw a, a skit once where, you know, they had that scene, scenario, the flight attendant giving the instructions, no one listening, and then the next bit is the plane has crashed and they're all in the water and the flight attendant's going, now you want me to give you the instructions for the life safety vest. Now you wish you'd listened. It's like, but these, it is a ritual, this taking of the refuges and precepts, but they're also practices that really do support our time here together and, of course, can support our whole life of practice if, if we take them seriously. Taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, that's called the Triple Gem. But this concept of refuge, of taking, uh, taking, taking something as a protection uh, this, the, uh, in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, again, as I said, can seem a little foreign. It's not something we normally talk about or know how to do. So sometimes I offer this as, how about we're appreciating the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha? And we can do that by contemplating what our lives would be like if there weren't Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. The Buddha hadn't existed. Obviously, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, But imagine if that 
person 2,500 years ago hadn't awakened and began teaching and passed down this great lineage, what our lives would be like, what our lives would be like without the Dharma, without the teachings, without the truth, without a sense of a path of practice that could lead us to greater happiness and less suffering, to freedom, what our lives would be like without Sangha, without a sense of the wise friends that Steve was just speaking about. So if we contemplate in this way, perhaps we get a sense of how much Buddha Dharma Sangha does mean to us, whether it's a historical Buddha and, and the lineage that he began. It also represents our possibility of awakening, the possibility of awakening, the Dharma being the teachings of the Buddha, but also the truth and the Sangha, the community of like-minded people who are practicing sincerely. If they didn't exist... Obviously, we wouldn't be here. And I know for myself, my life would be much, much poorer. Uh, I, you know, hard to even contemplate. So just to hold this sense of appreciation as we begin this retreat for this triple gem that has allowed us to come together in this way. And then the practice of the precepts. St- Steve has spoken uh, a little bit about them, how they just create a sense of safety and harmony in a community, an atmosphere of trust that we can really uh, understand, uh, have a shared understanding of respect towards each other and towards the surroundings. So really very important. Just to say briefly, the the first precept is that of not killing other living beings. So we take uh, good care of uh, all of the beings around us. We like to end the retreat with as many yogis as we began the retreat, even if they do get a little irritating now and then, please refrain. But it also refers to the smallest of beings, mosquitoes or things underfoot, that we take care with that, that each being wants to live. Next precept about uh, not taking that which is not freely offered, so it's not basically not stealing, uh, we respect the belongings of others, the, the things that are offered by Spirit Rock. We take what's offered and we don't take what hasn't been offered. Third precept about sexuality um, and not uh, using our sexual energy in a way that can harm or abuse someone else. And here on the retreat, taking a, a more limited sense of that where we really don't express our sexual energy, again, to allow everyone to have a sense of privacy on this retreat, that they're allowed to have their own retreat. So really a, a keeping uh, inward any, any, any form of sexual expression uh, through word or gesture, or looks, it's just kept within. And then the fourth precept of uh, wise speech, abstaining from false speech. Steve said in this retreat, we take it as noble silence. He spoke a little bit about that. We also like to extend it to the other forms of um, written speech or reading. It's really helpful to keep the simplicity of the practice, not to do a lot of writing or journaling. A little bit of note-taking is fine, but not to do that extensively and, and not to read. It really puts the mind in a different wavelength to what we're trying to cultivate here. And so it can be a distraction to the practice. Last precept of that, of not taking drugs and intoxicants that cloud the mind, lead to heedlessness. We're looking to clarity of mind, so recreational drugs are uh, not recommended for this retreat. So keep things simple. 
So you have your chant sheets in front of you. Um, we'll do the, the homage to the Buddha, Namo Tassa, in unison, because I think many of you know that. And then the refuges we'll do in Pali. And I'll do it in call and response. I'll say the first word, which is, or two, you know, few that changes, and then the last phrase, again, many of you know, we'll do, I'll, I'll do it call and response, and we'll, we'll do it that way. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranangga chami, dhammang saranangga chami, sanghang saranangga chami, dutiyampi buddhang saranangga chami, dutiyampi dhammang saranangga chami, Tutiampi sanggang saranangga chami, tatiampi budang saranangga chami, tatiampi damang saranangga chami, tatiampi sanggang saranangga chami. Now call and response. Panati pata. Panati pata Veramani sikha padang samadhyami Veramani sikha padang samadhyami Adina dana Adina dana Veramani sikha padang samadhyami Veramani sikha padang samadhyami Abramacharya Abramacharya. Veramani sikha padang samadhyami. Veramani sikha padang samadhyami. Musawada. Musawada. Veramani sikha padang samadhyami. Veramani sikha padang samadhyami. Sura Maraya. Sura Maraya. Majapamadatana. Majapamadatana. Veramani sikha padang samadhyami. Veramani sikha padang samadhyami. And there are eight precepts that we'll talk about. Uh, the uh, main ref, uh, practice in the eight precepts and not eating after the noonday meal. We'll give the opportunity to take them at another time. But for now, we'll just go with the five and do the uh, homage at the end. Idang me silang, idang me silang. Magapala nyana sa, magapala nyana sa. Pachayo ho tu, pachayo tu. So with that, we formally enter the retreat realm, and we're just going to end with a few minutes of meditation practice led by Guy. First, uh, before we do, can you hear me? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.